Section 12, Part 2 of Section 4 of the Introduction of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackston. Book 1. Introduction, Section 4, Part 2. Our American plantations are principally of this latter sort, being obtained in the last century, either by right of conquest and driving out the natives, with what natural justice I shall not at present inquire, or by treaties. And therefore the common law of England, as such, has no allowance or authority there, they being no part of the mother country, but distinct, though dependent, dominions, they are subject, however, to the control of the Parliament, though, like Ireland, man, and the rest, not bound by any acts of Parliament, unless particularly named. The form of government in most of them is borrowed from that of England. They have a governor named by the king, or in some proprietary colonies by the proprietor, who is his representative or deputy. They have courts of justice of their own, from whose decisions an appeal lies to the king in council here in England. Their assemblies, which are their house of commons, together with their council of state being their upper house, with the concurrence of the king or his representative, the governor, make laws suited to their own emergencies. But it is particularly declared by statute 7 and 8, William the Third, chapter 22, that all laws, by-laws, usages, and customs, which shall be in practice in any of the plantations repugnant to any law made or to be made in this kingdom relative to the said plantations shall be utterly void and of non-effect. These are the several parts of the dominions of the crown of Great Britain, in which the municipal laws of England are not of force or authority, merely as the municipal laws of England. Most of them have probably copied the spirit of their own law from this original, but then it receives its obligation and authoritative force from being the law of the country. As to any foreign dominions which may belong to the person of the king by hereditary descent, by purchase, or other acquisition, as the territory of Hanover, and his majesty's other property in Germany, as these do not in any wise appertain to the crown of these kingdoms, they are entirely unconnected with the laws of England, and do not communicate with this nation in any respect whatsoever. The English legislature had wisely remarked the inconvenience that had formerly resulted from dominions on the continent of Europe, from the Norman territory which William the Conqueror brought with him, and held in conjunction with the English throne, and from Anjou and its appendages, which fell to Henry the Second by hereditary descent. They had seen the nation engaged in near four hundred years together in ruinous wars for defence of these foreign dominions, till happily for this country they were lost under the reign of Henry the Sixth. They observed that from that time the maritime interests of England were better understood and more clearly pursued, that, in consequence of this attention, the nation, as soon as she had rested from her civil wars, 
began at this period to flourish all at once, and became much more considerable in Europe than when her princes were possessed of a larger territory, and her councils distracted by foreign interests. The experience and these considerations gave birth to a conditional clause in the Act of Settlement, which vested in the Crown, in His Present Majesty's illustrious house, quote, that in case the Crown and Imperial dignity of this realm shall hereafter come to any person not being a native of this kingdom of England, this nation shall not be obliged to engage in any war for the defence of any dominions or territories which do not belong to the Crown of England, without consent of Parliament. End quote. We come now to consider the kingdom of England in particular, the direct and immediate subject of those laws, concerning which we are to treat in the ensuing commentaries. And this comprehends not only Wales, of which enough has been already said, but also part of the sea. The main or high seas are part of the realm of England, for thereon our courts of admiralty have jurisdiction as will be shown hereafter, but they are not subject to the common law. This main sea begins at the low-water mark, but between the high-water mark and the low-water mark, where the sea ebbs and flows, the common law and the admiralty have divisum imperium, an alternate jurisdiction, upon the water, when it is full sea, the other upon the land, when it is an ebb. The territory of England is liable to two divisions, the one ecclesiastical, the other civil. 1. The ecclesiastical division is, primarily, into two provinces, those of Canterbury and York. A province is the circuit of an archbishop's jurisdiction. Each province contains diverse dioceses, or sees, of suffragan bishops, whereof Canterbury includes twenty-one, and York three. Besides the bishopric of the Isle of Man, which was annexed to the province of York by King Henry VIII, every diocese is divided into archdeaconries, whereof there are sixty in all, each archdeaconry into rural deaneries, which are the secret of the archdeacon's and rural dean's jurisdiction, of whom hereafter, and every deanery, is divided into parishes. A parish is that circuit of ground in which the souls under the care of one parson or vicar do inhabit. These are computed to be near ten thousand in number. How ancient the division of parishes is may at present be difficult to ascertain, for it seems to be agreed on all hands that in the early ages of Christianity in this island parishes were unknown, or at least signified the same that a diocese does now. There was then no appropriation of ecclesiastical dues to any particular church, but every man was at liberty to contribute his tithes to whatever priest or church he pleased, provided only that he did it to some, or, if he made no special appointment or appropriation thereof, they were paid into the hands of the bishop, whose duty it was to distribute them among the clergy, and for other pious purposes according to his own discretion. Mr. Camden says England was divided into parishes by Archbishop Honorius about the year 630. 
Sir Henry Hobart, lays it down that parishes were first erected by the Council of Lecheren, which was held A.D. 1179, each wildly differing from the other, and both of them perhaps from the truth, which will probably be found in the medium between the two extremes. For Mr. Selden has clearly shown that the clergy lived in common without any division of parishes long after the time mentioned by Camden, and it appears from the Saxon laws that parishes were in being long before the date of that council of Lateran, to which they are ascribed by Hobart. We find the distinction of parishes, nay, even of mother churches, so early as in the laws of King Edgar, about the year 970. Before that time, the consecration of tithes was in general arbitrary, that is, every man paid his own, as was before observed, to what church or parish he pleased, but this being liable to be attended with either fraud, or at least caprice, in the persons paying, and with either jealousies or mean compliances, in such as were competitors for receiving them, it was now ordered, by the law of King Edgar, that, quote, Dentur omnes decimae primerie ecclesiae ad quam parotia pertinet, end quote. However, if any thane or great lord had a church within his own demesnes, distinct from the mother church, in the nature of a private chapel, then, provided such church had a cemetery or consecrated place of burial belonging to it, he might allot one-third of his tithes for the maintenance of the officiating minister. But, if it had no cemetery, the thane must himself have maintained his chaplain by some other means, for in such case all his tithes were ordained to be paid to the primerie ecclesiae, or mother church. This proves that the kingdom was then universally divided into parishes, which division happened probably not all at once, but by degrees, for it seems pretty clear and certain that the boundaries of parishes were originally ascertained by those of a manor or manors, since it very seldom happens that a manor extends itself over more parishes than one, though there are often many manors in one parish. The lords, as Christianity spread itself, began to build churches upon their own domestics or wastes to accommodate their tenants in one or two adjoining lordships, and, in order to have divine service regularly performed therein, obliged all their tenants to appropriate their tithes to the maintenance of one officiating minister, instead of leaving them at liberty to distribute them among the clergy, of the diocese in general. And this tract of land, the tithes whereof were so appropriated, formed a distinct parish, which will well enough account for the frequent intermixture of parishes one with another, for if a lord had a parcel of land detached from the main of his estate, but not sufficient to form a parish of itself, it was natural to him to endow his newly erected church with the tithes of those disjoined lands, especially if no church was then built in any lordship adjoining to those outlying parcels. 2. The civil division of the territory of England is into counties. Of those counties, two hundred. Of those hundreds, into tithings, or towns, which division, as it now stands, 
seems to owe its original to King Alfred, who, to prevent the rapiness and disorders which formerly prevailed in the realm, instituted tithings, so-called, from the Saxon, because ten freeholders with their families composed one. These all dwelt together, and were sureties, or free pledges, to the king for the good behavior of each other, and, if any offense were committed in their district, they were bound to have the offender forthcoming, and therefore, anciently, no man was suffered to abide in England above forty days, unless he were enrolled in some tithing or decenary. One of the principal inhabitants of the tithing is annually appointed to preside over the rest, being called the tithing-man, the headborough, words which speak their own etymology, and in some countries the boars-holder, or boars-elder, being supposed the discreetest man in the borough, town, or tithing. Tithings, towns, or villes, are of the same signification in law, and had, each of them, originally, a church and celebration of divine service, sacraments, and burials, which to have, or have had, separate to itself, is the essential distinction of a town, according to Sir Edward Cook. The word town or ville is indeed, by the alteration of times and language, now become a generical term, comprehending under it the several species of cities, boroughs, and common towns. A city is a town incorporated, which is, or has been, the see of a bishop, and though the bishopric be dissolved, as at Westminster, yet still it remains a city. A borough is now understood to be a town, either corporate or not, that sent it burgesses to Parliament. Other towns there are, to the number, Sir Edward Cook says, of 8,803, which are neither cities nor boroughs, some of which have the privileges of markets, and others not, but both are equally towns in law. To several of these towns there are small appendages belonging, called hamlets, which are taken notice of in the statute of Exeter, which makes frequent mention of entire villes, demivilles, and hamlets. Entire villes, Sir Henry Spellman, conjectures to have consisted of ten freemen, or frank pledges, demivilles of five, and hamlets of less than five. These little collections of houses are sometimes under the same administration as the town itself, sometimes governed by separate officers, in which last case it is, to some purposes in law, looked upon as a distinct township. These towns, as was before hinted, contained each originally but one parish, and one tithing, though many of them now, by the increase of inhabitants, are divided into several parishes and tithings, and sometimes, where there is but one parish, there are two or more villes or tithings, as ten families of freeholders make up a town or a tithing, so ten tithings composed a superior division, called a hundred, as consisting of ten times ten families. The hundred is governed by a high constable or bailiff, and formerly there was regularly held in it the hundred court for the trial of causes, though now fallen into disuse. In some of the more northern counties, these hundreds are called vapentakes. The subdivision of hundreds into tithings 
seems to be most peculiarly the invention of Alfred. The institutions of hundreds themselves he rather introduced than invented, for they seem to have obtained in Denmark. And we find that in France a regulation of this sort was made above two hundred years before, set on foot by Clotarius and Childebert, with the view of obliging each district to answer for the robberies committed in its own division. These divisions were, in that country, as well military as civil, and each contained a hundred freemen, who were subject to an officer called the Centenarius, a number of which Centenari were themselves subject to a superior officer called the Count or Comes. And indeed, this institution of hundreds may be traced back as far as the ancient Germans, from which were derived both the Franks, who became masters of Gaul, and the Saxons, who settled in England. For we read in Tacitus that both the thing and the name were well known to that warlike people. Quote, Centeni ex singulis pagis sunt, itque ipsum inter suos vocantur, et quod primo numerus fuit, Yam nomen et honor est. End quote. An indefinite number of these hundreds make up a county or shire. Shire is a Saxon word signifying a division, but a county, comitatus, is plainly derived from comis, the count of the Franks, that is, the earl or alderman, as the Saxons called him, of the shire to whom the government of it was entrusted. This he usually exercised by his deputy, still called in Latin, vice-commis, and in English the sheriff, shreve or shirereve, signifying the officer of the shire, upon whom, by process of time, the civil administration of it is now totally devolved. In some counties, the officer of the shire, upon whom, by process of time, the civil administration of it is now totally devolved. In some counties there is an intermediate division between the shire and the hundreds, as Leitz in Kent and Rapes in Sussex, each of them containing about three or four hundreds apiece. These had formerly had their lathe reeves and rape reeves acting in subordination to the shire reeve, where a country is divided into three of these intermediate jurisdictions, they are called trithings, which were anciently governed by a trithing reeve. These trithings still subsist in the large county of York, where, by an easy corruption, they are denominated ridings, the north, the east, and the west riding. The number of counties in England and Wales have been different at different times. At present, there are forty in England, and twelve in Wales. Three of these counties, Chester, Durham, and Lancaster, are called counties Palatine. The two former are such by prescription, or immemorial custom, or at least as old as the Norman conquest. The latter was created by King Edward III, in favor of Henry Plantagenet, first earl and then duke of Lancaster, whose heiress, John of Ghent, the king's son, had married, and afterwards confirmed in Parliament, to honour John of Ghent himself, whom, on the death of his father-in-law, 
he had also created Duke of Lancaster. Counties Palatine are so called a palatio, because of the towns thereof. The Earl of Chester, the Bishop of Durham, and the Duke of Lancaster, had in those counties jura regalia, as fully as the king hath in his palace, regalem potestatem in omnibus, as Bracton expresses it. They might pardon treasons, murders, and felonies. They appointed all judges and justices of the peace. All writs and indictments ran in their names, as in other counties in the king's, and all offences were said to be done against their peace, and not, as in other places, contrapassem domini regis. And indeed, by the ancient law, in all peculiar jurisdictions, offences were said to be done against his peace, in whose court they were tried, in a court leet, contrapassem domini, in the court of a corporation, contrapassem valivorum, in the sheriff's court, or torn, contrapassem vice comitis. These palatine privileges were in all probability originally granted to the counties of Chester and Durham, because they bordered upon enemy countries, Wales and Scotland, in order that the owners, being encouraged by so large an authority, might be the more watchful in its defence, and that the inhabitants, having justice administered at home, might not be obliged to go out of the county and leave it open to the enemy's incursions. And upon this account, also, there were formerly two other counties palatine, Pembrokeshire and Herxhamshire, the latter now united with Northumberland, but these were abolished by Parliament, the former in 27 Henry VIII, the latter in 14 Elizabeth, and in 27 Henry III, likewise, the powers before mentioned of owners of counties palatine were abridged. The reason for their continuance in a manner ceasing, though still all writs are witnessed in their names, and all forfeitures for treason by the common law accrue to them. Of these three, the county of Durham is now the only one remaining in the hands of a subject, for the earldom of Chester, as Camden testifies, was united to the crown by Henry the Third, and has ever since given title to the king's eldest son, and the county palatine, or duchy, of Lancaster was the property of Henry of Bolingbroke, the son of John of Grant, at the same time when he wrested the crown from King Richard the Second, and assumed the title of Henry the Fourth. But he was too prudent to suffer this to be united to the crown, lest, if he lost one, he should lose the other also. For, as Plowden and Sir Edward Cook observed, quote, he knew he had the duty of Lancaster by sure and indefeasible title, but that his title to the crown was not so assured, for that after the decease of Richard the Second, the right of the crown was in the heir of Launed Duke of Clarence, second son of Edward the Third, John of Ghent, father to this Henry the Fourth, being but the fourth son, and therefore he procured an act of Parliament in the first year of his reign to keep it distinct and separate from the crown, and so it descended to his son and grandson, Henry the Fifth and Henry the Sixth. Henry the Sixth being attained in one Edward the Fourth, this duty was declared in Parliament to have become forfeited to the crown, 
and at the same time an act was made to keep it still distinct and separate from the other inheritances of the crown. And in one, Henry the Seventh, another act was made to vest the inheritance thereof in Henry the Seventh and his heirs. And in this state, say Sir Edward Cook and Lambert, viz., in the natural heirs or posterity of Henry the Seventh, did the right of the duchy remain in their days, a separate and distinct inheritance from that of the crown of England. The Isle of Ely is not a county palatine, though sometimes erroneously called so, but only a royal franchise, the bishop having, by grant of King Henry I, jura regalia within the Isle of Ely, and thereby he exercises a jurisdiction over all causes, as well criminal as civil. There are also counties corporate, which are certain cities and towns, some with more, some with less territory annexed to them, to which out of special grace and favour the kings of England have granted to be counties of themselves, and not to be comprised in any other county, but to be governed by their own sheriffs and other magistrates, so that no officers of the county at large have any power to intermeddle therein. Such are London, York, Bristol, Norwich, Coventry, and many others, and thus much of the country subject to the laws of England. End of section 12